Good evening. How are we doing this evening? Good, awesome. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so let us begin as we should do in all things in invoking God in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day, for this opportunity to continue to deepen and grow in our understanding of our faith, our understanding of you as our Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Watch over us during this time. Open our minds, open our hearts, and open our lives to you. We ask all these things in your Son's name as we pray together in the words that our Savior Jesus Christ gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm going to preface tonight's talk by saying there is no way I can talk everything there is to know about the Son in 55 minutes. It's not possible. Um, she's already leaving. I'm telling you that, that fast now. <laughs> but th there is so much to talk about when we talk about um, the second person, the Trinity. There's so much to talk about when we talk about the person of Jesus. So I'm going to try and just hit some of the high points. Um, next week, we'll um, finish out rounding out the Trinity by talking about the third person, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then the two weeks after that, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things I'm going to lead into tonight. Because we're going to talk about the fall of man the man's need for redemption, and then Christ's passion, death, and resurrection for our redemption. So it all kind of comes together in the next um, three or four classes. So when we think of the second person of the Trinity, when is the first time in Scripture that we hear about the Son? Trick question, so watch out. Ironically, the first time is in the book of Genesis. We just know that when we look back. Now, normally you think, wait a second, no, Jesus didn't come along until we get to the Gospels. What do you mean we heard about him in Genesis? Well, one of my favorite um, writers growing up, because I'm a little kid at heart, I still read some of him, was C.S. Lewis. You guys have heard of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Well, he was also a philosopher and theologian. And one of the great things that he did with his literature when he talked about this world that was created of Narnia was he actually put into that some theological thought. In fact, in the first chronological book, and there will be fights over that conversation, the first chronological book in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series is The Magician's Nephew. In The Magician's Nephew, I'm going to ruin it for you, but it's been out for a long time, so you've had an opportunity to read it. In The Magician's Nephew, these two kids go into this world as it's being created. And we see in this him trying to explain to his kids Genesis, the creation of the world, that we hear in John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Sound familiar? Well, if in the beginning was the Word, and Jesus is the Word, then when God breathed 
and spoke creation into being, it was the second person of the Trinity that we come thousands of years later to know of as the Son of God, Jesus, that that is his first real introduction to humanity. Does that make sense? So we, we, we have to look at the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, through the lens of the life of Christ. As Christians, he is our lens for everything. But for many in the world, that's not so. And so another text that C.S. Lewis wrote that I highly recommend if you have any friends or if you yourself have or do have any doubts about who Jesus is, I highly recommend reading the text, Mere Christianity. Has anybody read it before or looked into it? In Mere Christianity, it's one of my favorite books to talk about when we talk about the person of Jesus Christ. Because C.S. Lewis posits to us a great question. And his question to us is, who is Jesus? When we talk about Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Son of God, he narrows it down to three potentialities. He's either a liar, he made everything up and we have fallen for the biggest trick in the world. He's a lunatic, he was just bat crap crazy. And yet again, we all fell for the biggest trick in the world. Or he's the Lord. So he's liar, lunatic, or Lord. And this is really at the heart of when we look at the person of Jesus, when we look at his teachings, when we look at the Gospels, when we look at what he tries to lead us to in the faith, we as Christians, as Catholics, don't see him as a liar, don't see him as a lunatic, we see him as the Lord. And so when people say, well, why does the church do this? Well, why did Jesus say this? I don't know why Jesus said what he said. But because of my foundational belief and understanding that Jesus truly is the Lord, that he didn't make it up, he didn't try and trick us, he didn't try and just pull one over on us, but the fact that I believe that he is the Lord, I have to take what he says as, for lack of a better way to put it, gospel truth, because he wrote the gospels. And we'll get into that a little bit next week when we talk about divine inspiration through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Lord, that means a lot for us. But also, he's known as what? He has a lot of different titles. He's known as the Lamb of God. He's known as the new Adam. He's known as the new Moses. And why do they reference those different things? It's important because for the people of those times, everybody knew who Adam was. It's all his fault that we're not in the garden, right? Well, Adam was the first man. And as first man, he was given everything and given free will. And Adam decided to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He decided to sin, that first sin of our parents. And we'll get into that in two weeks specifically. But then he's also called the new Moses. And in fact, when we look at the time frame of Moses' life and the time frame of Jesus' life, it's amazing how many parallels we see. And it starts from before either one of them was even born. In fact, it's very evident in Scripture when we look at the Scriptures of the time around Moses' birth and of the time around Jesus' birth that people knew what was coming, that there was a prophecy that there was going to be birth of somebody special, someone important. And in both situations, the government was not having it. In fact, in both time periods, there was a murder of the innocent children under the age of two. 
because they didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. But who escaped? Well, Moses escaped. How did Moses escape? His mother put him in a wicker basket and goes down the Nile. And then what happens? Pharaoh, the one who put this order in, his daughter finds this baby in a basket, picks the baby up, and then as only divine providence can will it, she gives the child to Moses' mom to nurture and take care of him and to breastfeed him and to teach him. It's like, seriously, God, that you're just showing off now. But also we see the same thing very much so in Jesus' life. There was this slaughter of the ch- children. This happened at both of those time periods. And Jesus escaped. We even hear about when the Magi, who probably were not three kings, you guys knew that, right? That when we have the three names of the three kings, the Magi, probably A, were not kings, there probably were not three of them. They were just astrologers following the signs of the stars. Now, we traditionally have that we have the three names of them that are not coming to my mind right now. But we have to look at Scripture in what it means. What is it trying to show us? That these people that were not Jews, these people that did not know the Messiah, didn't know the story of him, sought this star. And the light of the world led them to the light of the world, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And we see all of these prophecies through Hebrew text, through the Old Testament, prophesying about what was going to happen when the Messiah would come. Now, when Jesus came, people knew but didn't know. In fact, does anybody know what Jesus' first miracle is? Mm. See, that's what we think. Now, the trick question. The miracle is a boy listened to his mom. Remember the story. I mean, remember it. He's at this wedding feast in Cana, and they run out of wine. And so they come to Mary. They don't go to Jesus. They go to Mary. And Mary's like, oh, crap. Uh, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had had this response to anyone in my family, my mom, my dad, anybody, grandma, smacked in the back of the face, it's going to happen. But what he says to her in our context, not in theirs, but in our context, seems very disrespectful, doesn't it? Woman, what concern of this, what concern is this of yours to me? What is her response? Do whatever he tells you. And then what does he do? Changes the water to wine. He listens to his mom. So yes, technically, the changing of water to wine is the first miracle, but I'm telling you, a man listening to his mom, biggest miracle in the world. Not the biggest, obviously. But so he starts with that. And then he goes through his life teaching, preaching. But what happens right after the wedding feast at Cana? Let me know. He goes to this place called like the River Jordan. Rain any bells? What happens at the River Jordan? Well, it's interesting because when we see that interaction in Scripture, it seems like John the Baptist has no idea who Jesus is. Do you notice that? They're cousins. They are first cousins. Mary and Elizabeth, second cousins, because Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. But they are related. They knew each other. In fact, 
John the Baptist is the first person in human history to recognize the presence of the Messiah outside of his mother and his father. And he did it as a baby in the womb. That when Mary goes and visits her sister Elizabeth, or her cousin Elizabeth, what happens? The baby leapt in her womb. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come and greet me? Because of what happens in her womb, Elizabeth knows. Now, I don't know about you, but if, first of all, if I were pregnant, that'd be a whole other story. But if I were a woman and I were pregnant, and a baby leaps in my belly, the first thought in my mind isn't, ooh, the Savior's here. No. But because they were looking for these signs, because they were looking for these symbols, it had specific symbolism to them at that point. So from that point on, we see God intervening in a very specific and intentional way through the person of Jesus, his son. Now, we have a lot of struggles when it comes to talking about Jesus. There are some people that say Jesus was just a prophet. I mean, what was our gospel last week? Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others still say that you're just one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter, being who he is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Shh, don't tell anybody. That's interesting too. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't want that proclaimed until after his death because he wanted to make sure that the things that he was telling them was going to happen, that he could tell them that they were going to happen so they would believe after the fact, not before the fact. Because for many people throughout human history, we didn't have the opportunity to have a first eye accounting of what happened. That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have the gospels. That's why we have the letters of Paul. Though Paul never knew Christ before his crucifixion. The only really interactions that we really see close-wise to Christ in his life was when he witnesses a martyrdom. And whose martyrdom does Paul, at that point, Saul, witness? Stephen. And who was Stephen? Why does Stephen matter? He's the first deacon in the church. That Stephen, being the first deacon, being the first martyr of the church, Saul is there before he has his conversion. It's immediately after that that Saul has his conversion on the road to Damascus. And what happens in that? Jesus comes and kicks him off a horse, right? No. There's not a horse involved if you actually look at the Acts of the Apostles. What happens is Paul is walking on his way to Damascus, and this blinding light comes before him, and he falls to the ground. Now, we think that, well, what did he trip on? He obviously had to fall off something, because if not, why are you falling to the ground? But no, that story isn't quite as we see it or as we learned it as children, because most of us as children learn stories that we could begin to understand. One of the things we normally don't realize until you become a teacher of religious education is that every single year you go through RE, you're learning the same thing, the same week, every year. We always start, except for the class that I'm teaching here, with what? Every single year, the first class normally in a, in a normal RE curriculum, the liturgical year, because we want you to know what the feasts are, what the colors the priest wears, and those things. We start out with talking about the logistics, and then we start off maybe talking about a little bit of Genesis, creation, sin, how Adam ate an apple in the garden, probably a fig, 
based on where Mesopotamia would have been. Apples didn't grow naturally, probably ate a fig. Because when we look at the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates, today, modern day Iraq, those things didn't grow there. And so, so we take all of these stories that we learn as children and we ascribe them as the truth. And then we learn the older we get, wait a second, Paul Harvey had it right. So as adults, we get the rest of the story. And the rest of the story many times is so much more beautiful than those lessons and analogies that we learned as children, but we can't understand them until we get older in life. When we talk about the Son of God, when we talk about the second person, the Trinity, as a child, if I say he's one person of the Trinity, what do you hear? That the Trinity is made up of three people, which is true. The problem is, even as adults, we can't wrap our minds around how three people equals one God. Wait a second. How does this work? We fall into what's called heresy, which is a teaching that is not taught by the church, that directly pulls people away from the church. In fact, there's been a lot of heresies in the church teaching, specifically when we talk about the person of Jesus. We've got like Gnostic docetism, or docetism, which denied the true humanity of Jesus. That Jesus, when he was born, was God made flesh, so he just like came and possessed this infant that was already there, and he wasn't really human, wasn't really divine. He was just God. There was no humanity in him. And that's heresy because we, as Catholics, believe what? That Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, again, we struggle to wrap our minds around that. I took a whole semester of what's called Christology, the study of Jesus as the Christ, and I was just as confused at the end as I was at the beginning. Because many times we try to divide, well, when is Jesus' humanity playing and when is Jesus' divinity showing? And there are some times where it's very obvious for ones, other ones like, I don't know. Like when we talk about the crucifixion, when Jesus died on the cross, did God die? It's a Christological, basic Christological question. Most people are like, that's a great question. The humanity of Christ, the body of Christ, died. God did not die. And so, so that's a, uh, how do we explain that? Because he's fully human and fully divine, but he's, we can't just dissect this and dissect this. We'll get to that as we go through later cl classes. As I've got the specific notes about that later on. But those are some of the things where it's like, huh, I never thought about that before, that we don't think about those things many times when we talk about the person of Jesus. We think, Jesus, it's the answer to every question that Father asks. Jesus, although for me it's like love or the serenity prayer, but yes, Jesus is the answer to many of our questions that we have in our life. We just are searching as Christians to find the why. Why is Jesus the answer? Remember last week when we talked about Genesis 15 and we talked about Luke 15? Genesis 15, to remind those that were here last week, and for those that weren't here last week, is the covenant between God and Abram, and that the price of the covenant was if I break my side, humanity, that you, God, will pay the price. If I, God, break my side of the covenant, then I, God, will pay the price. Well, that price of sin, and we'll get into this more in two weeks when we talk about the fall of man and need for redemption, but that price of sin was the life of Christ. 
the life of Jesus, the life of the lamb who was slain for our sins. In two weeks as well, we'll get specifically, if you get a chance, Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, I highly recommend picking this up by Brant Petrie. It is a great way, A, to understand better the covenant really with Moses and the fleeing from Egypt and the Passover, but also to see how Christ fulfills that role as the sacrificial lamb as well. Uh, one of the classes, we'll get into some of the specifics on that, but basically when we talk about the exodus from Egypt, what did they have to have the night before so that the Passover could happen? They had to have an unblemished lamb. Unblemished meaning has no imperfections. We talk about Jesus as the lamb who was slain. He is this unblemished lamb. And what had to happen? The blood had to go on the doorpost. Three rods. Three rods. And the blood on the cross paid the price for our sins. And so many times we'll have um, a lot of non-Catholic Christians come and ask the question, why do you as Catholics have crucifixes? Why do you put the body of Jesus up there? Why do you continue to crucify him? Are you just like the, the Jews that are there and just say, crucify him, crucify him when we read through the Passion? No. The cross didn't save us. The cross is what we're called to pick up as our burden. It's the body on the cross that paid the price for our sins. And the body on the cross, not just the body of the cross, but the body, not just the person, but him paying the price for our sins in that way. And so when we wear crucifixes versus wearing a cross, which I, growing up in a military base, didn't realize the chapel that we went to was a non-denominational church. They had the cross, and you flip it around, hence a crucifix. I didn't know that until I became an adult. It's like, wait, what? I've been fooled my whole life. And then there's also something they put over it for the non-Christian services. It's like, huh, things you learn in your adulthood. Didn't even come across my mind until we moved to more, and we went to a Catholic church. It's like, ooh, Jesus is everywhere. This is cool. We never had the Stations of the Cross. They put them up every week at the church. Why? Because it wasn't a parish. It was a place we can go and celebrate Mass, but it wasn't a parish. It was a place, it was a chapel that we can go and celebrate those things. And so, questions so far? I realize I'm throwing a lot at you because I'm trying to get to as much as I can. Of how all worked out. But like the stories of, of Christ's life, you mean? So uh, one recommendation, and I made this my first week and I got here, I think. Um, if you listen to Father Mike Schmitz, um, he's doing the Bible in a year, and he's doing the timeline really from Genesis all the way through Scripture. But what he's doing is he's, he's following Jeff Cavins's, Jeff Cavins's um, Bible, Adventure Bible Timeline. So it's actually a, a way to go through that. And so if you listen to the podcast that he has for free on any podcast app, you can download those and listen to it, but you can also download, I think there's an online version of the actual list on there, but then you just have to go back and read. Basically, the timeline, it's in the Bible. Um, and so, so trying to parse all those things out, that's kind of what I'm trying to do um, through some of these classes, is make it more linear, because 
even between like the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and those connections to the New Testament, there's very few texts unless you're looking for a specific event. That's one of the great things about this is, but this whole book, it's one event. It's talking about the Passover in Exodus and linking it to the sacrifice of Christ. This is one event is a 230 page book. So there's not one centralized location where you're gonna find them all. But if you're looking for specific ones, I can try and help with that. The one last week we looked at was um, the prodigal son, um, which is another kind of story that links us really to Genesis 15 with that need um, for salvation because of that first covenant with man. That kind of help. I realize I didn't have a full answer, but there isn't anything out there that gives you everything, unfortunately. There's a lot of um, piecemeal things. Um, Bishop Robert Barron, um, has a lot of those um, as well. He just came out with a new series, I wanna say today or yesterday, I was looking at, um, that he's publicizing, that goes into more of the, emo- the relational um, aspects of life of faith. Um, but he's got um, his uh, Words on Fire Bible that has a lot of those things in there. Um, the Catholicism series, there's actually a, an audio book, um, Catholicism, about an eight and a half hour book. Um, so it doesn't go through all of his Catholicism series, but it goes through some of the high points. Uh, so there's a lot that's out there. Um, I go to auto, audiobooks because driving back to the city, um, I can get two hours there and two hours back and I'm halfway through a book. Um, yeah, Shannon. Oh yeah. So for those that are watching, the, the question was, is there a place you can go to that has all of this chronologically out there? Um, Shannon was saying that, they're, that, that using the Bible timeline does have a lot of those things, the, the religious, the scriptural, and the secular things to kind of line those things out. Because I've learned that not everybody can hear the questions. Other questions? Yeah, Teresa. So, Yes. Yeah, so, so, so every week I'm going to have different books that, I'm, that, that, that I'll be using, and I'll make sure during those classes to recommend them. Um, but it's normally an after the fact, because all of these classes I'm writing the week before, <laughs> because I did not have as much time this summer as I expected. Um, yeah. Um, so, 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 so far I've recommended um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist um, and Love Unveiled by Edward Shree. Uh, both fantastic, and those really helped with um, this class, the first class, and will really help out in the class in two weeks when we talk about um, really the Passover and, and how that really helped um, with um, salvation history. And so, so the question was, are there any, do I have a list of the books? Basically, I'm using the catechism, these two books, um, scripture, and then um, I'm attending the Ladder of Ascent classes. Um, they'll actually be starting next Tuesday. Um, the 21st, which are either in person or uh, there's going to be a Zoom option as well. There's a, there's a fee for registering online because uh, it's actually, actually an accredited class, 
but I have the texts already. So I'm using some of that as reference material for myself to kind of write these classes so that I don't just stand up here and I can read the catechism quotes that I've got for you, but I don't want to bore you. <laughs> um, so um, what I'll start doing next week, Eric, if you can remind me on Tuesdays, I will send you um, the links or, or the specific paragraphs and books, and we'll put that on the online um, so if you go to the link, it'll say, this week we're talking about uh, lesson three, the sun. We're using catechism. So this week we're using the catechism paragraphs 422 to 483 and 512 to 556. So, so that's kind of the bulk of the catechism material that I'm using for this class because I could have used the majority of the catechism for this class, but again, we've got 55 minutes. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure that we could get through a lot of these different things. Other questions? Okay, so looking at some of the other heresies, um, and, and the way that the church has dealt with heresy is that normally what happens is the leaders of the church come together and form a council. Um, so when you, when you hear like the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Orange, the Vatican Council, some of those councils didn't just come together to have people talk. They came together to specifically work on um, what we as Catholics believe. In fact, in 312... AD, in the year 312, there was one of the um, most famous councils, the councils of, of Nicaea. Does that ring a bell for anybody? It should for all of us that attend mass because the document that came out of that council, we profess as our faith every single Sunday. The creed that we profess is 1,700 years old. So what's interesting with that, if we look at many of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters, many of them profess either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which is really what I'm basing kind of the timeline of this class on. And so one of the struggles that we as humans have is we like to debate, and by debate I mean argue, and by argue I mean fight. I'm right, you're wrong. Sound about right? If not, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, <laughs> But, but that's one of the struggles many times when we get into what are called apologetics, when we talk about what we believe as Catholics, what we, what we believe as Christians. And people are like, oh, Father, I love having debates. Why? Many times we forget the fact that Catholics, first of all, are Christians. And, and many of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters don't profess that. It's like, wait, how did, how did you get there? But a lot of it is... Many times when we compare ourselves to, say, um, Baptists or Pentecostals or Lutherans or um, Church of Christ or uh, another Christian faith tradition, we want to say not so much what we agree on. We want to say how they're wrong and we're right. They don't believe in this. They don't believe in this. They don't believe in this, so they're wrong. Well, there is a lot of validity and a lot of truth in what those non-Catholic Christian churches teach. We need to validate that. Satan doesn't want us to validate that. But we believe in one faith, one baptism, one Lord, right? We hear that a lot. Well, if we believe in one baptism and they follow the matter and form of baptism, which is using water and using the Trinitarian formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is a valid baptism. In fact, and I'll get into this um, when Kirk is actually teaching the class on baptism, when we talk about baptism, you don't have to be baptized to baptize. 
Do you know that? In canon law, in um, the catechism, we look at what, do you, what, what are the things that you need for baptism? You need water in the Trinitarian formula and someone that has within them the mind and spirit of following what the church professes. So a non-baptized, technically in danger of death, can perform a baptism validly. When we talk about laseity, legality, things kind of get thrown in there. But in danger of death, pretty much all the rules are thrown out the window when we look at canon law and the sacraments. In danger of death, we can even, I mentioned this I think on Sunday um, in the homily, in danger of death we can do what's called a general absolution. Only in danger of death can we do a general absolution. Well, right after Vatican II, we as Catholic priests, and again, this was before I was born, but many Catholic priests tried to take some of the changes that happened in the council, and there was a lot of experimentation that really happened from 1965 until present. Some good experimentation, like having mass in the vernacular. Vernacular, in layman's terms, is in the common tongue. So being able to have mass in English, mass in Spanish. Because prior to then, mass was in Latin, everywhere in the world, which as much Latin as I don't know, solves a lot of our problems. Because no matter where you go to church, everybody's speaking the same language. Nobody knows what's going on. It's kind of nice. But now we have masses in different languages, and some people go to different churches because of mass in different languages. I understand that. Um, but many times we, sh we have that struggle of difference, difference, difference. I go to this church because I like the music. I go to this church because I like the priest. I go to this church because, and though those may be valid reasons to go, what is the most valid reason for us to go to church? The Eucharist. That is the centrality of who we are as Catholics. In fact, the Catechism says the source and summit of the Catholic faith is the Eucharist, the second person of the Trinity, the body of Christ. The source and summit of the Catholic faith is the Eucharist. But there was a survey that was done in the last decade called a CARA survey. You guys have heard of CARA before. It's, it's an organization that goes around and does a lot of surveys with different things. They did a survey in the Catholic Church trying to figure out how many percentage-wise of Catholics believe in what's called the real presence of the Eucharist. That what Christ says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, which again goes back to what happens in the desert again. How many Catholics, percentage-wise, believe in the real presence of the Eucharist? It was shocking. As a priest, it wasn't, unfortunately. What do you think the percentage of Catholics that believed in the real presence was? 10%? What, the first carousel? Yeah, the first time they did back in the 50s, it was 65. Within the last decade, one-third. One-third of Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ. That, to me, as a priest, is devastating. 
when we talk about live streaming mass, the reason some priests refuse to live stream mass isn't because they hate their parishioners, isn't because they don't care about their parishioners, is because what you get live streamed, even though you are able to do these spiritual, make a active spiritual communion, can't hold a candle to what we get when we come to mass. How many times have we heard the phrase, I'm not being fed at church? We hear that all the time. What you're saying is, I'm bored, I'm not entertained. We have that Russell Crowe from Gladiator, are you not entertained? No, I'm not, I'm bored. Okay, but when we come to mass, we are being fed the bread of life. You're being fed, fed he who sacrificed everything for you and for me out of love. We receive inside of us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. But if I don't believe that it really exists, it's just a cracker. It's just wine. And that's what we fall into that trap many times with some of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters. Well, why can't I receive communion at your church? Because you are not in communion with the church. Does that make sense? You can't receive if what we, what we believe you don't believe. When you come up for communion, I realize I'm going off topic, but I think this is important. When you come up to receive communion and you present yourself, what does the priest or the deacon or the, or the Eucharistic minister say? The body of Christ. Now, when we hear that, as Catholics who believe in the real presence, we hear one thing. But again, that's only one-third of us statistically. So the other two-thirds of us here, this represents the body of Christ. This is a good thing for you to receive. This will give you some magical powers. And that's, I've actually heard that from some of my Catholics. Like, ah, no! We don't believe in genie Christ, we believe in Jesus Christ. It's different, I promise you. It's not Santa Christ either where he just gives us all of these gifts. No, I mean, he does, but that's not who he is. He's Jesus the Christ. First of all, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. But when we come up and, and hear and receive the words, the body of Christ, what do we say in response? Amen. What does amen mean? I believe Yes, I assent. So when we say amen, that word means more than just amen. No, that word is our submission to what is happening in this transaction. I believe the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is being given to me. And that I am receiving that and taking that into my very being. You've heard that phrase, what you eat, you become? When we receive the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ. When we talk about the faithful in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, that Christ is the head of the body and we are its members, when we receive the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ, literally. But we just see how we are different parts. Well, Paul even talks about this. We are many parts, we are all one body, right? Well. Okay, then we're different parts of the body. That's okay, we're still the same body. But Satan wants to divide us against ourselves. And that's many times what we do when we have those conversations with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Because they are our brothers and sisters. 
And they aren't just ingrown hairs on the body of Christ. I've heard that said before. It's like, ooh, that's horrible. Or scabs or open wounds. What are you talking about? They are baptizing the same body of Christ that you and I are. And sometimes they get it more right than I do. Why? Because I'm a sinner just like they are. And we have to recognize our sinfulness to recognize the gift that we are given in the Eucharist. That Christ, when he presents him to us, as body, blood, soul, and divinity, as he presents himself to us as our Savior, as the bread of life, as the water of salvation, he's giving us something that is unmerited, which means we can't earn it. Unmerited, which means we can't lose it. We can reject it. But the love of God, as I said that first week, we cannot lose. We cannot gain. It just is. We'll talk about that a little bit next week, hopefully, if I remember, when we talk about the burning bush and Moses. When Moses approaches the burning bush, first of all, stop. This is holy round. Take off your shoes. And who does God say his name is? I am who am. When you conceive of God, that's who I am. And so when we talk then about the person of Christ, when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we have to look and say, what does the creed say about Jesus? What does the creed say about the Son of God? True God from true God. Begotten, not made. What does that mean? It means that in the beginning, there was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Invincible in both ways. And that's important for us to remember because we struggle to conceive of the beauty of God. We can see the beauty in nature, see the beauty in those around us, but we struggle sometimes to see how beautiful God is. And then we look at stories like, as I mentioned, that story of Moses. Really, you're just showing off at this point. You ever gone outside and seen a sunrise? If you're out of bed early enough. <laughs> or seen a sunset that is like, wow. Or just been to a place where you're just mind blown about how could this possibly exist? Or looked in the mirror and said, how does this function? In a good way, jerks. <laughs> but we look at ourselves and say, oh yeah, this just makes sense. Well, why does hair grow? Why do tooth, teeth grow? Why do they come out? How do they regenerate? Why does my body process things in one way and your body process things in another way? We don't look at the great mystery that is humanity. We don't look at the great mystery of anything because we are so bogged down by the things that really don't matter. You ever heard that phrase, why spend more than five minutes on something that five years down the road you won't even think of? But how many times do we? We spend the whole day on that five minutes of the day that sucked. Why? Because we get sucked in. We want to fall for that trick to make an excuse for why things aren't going the way we want them to go. Many times we do. I, I've done that. I fall into that all the time. 
That's why I go to confession and say, I messed up again. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I gave in to sin. I gave in to not your love. I gave in to a trap. I gave in to a trick, to doubt, to deceit, to a lie. And I believed it. I didn't trust fully in who you are, Jesus Christ. I didn't live as you called me to be. And Christ, he makes it so simple, ironically. But we make it so difficult many times. Jesus says what? Take my yoke upon your shoulders because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he says. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Have you seen the cross I'm bearing here some days, Lord? How can you say that this is easy? Well, when we look at life based on what's around us and not based on what's unseen, I understand that weight, that weight is horrible. But look to the lives of some of the saints. Look to the lives of some of the martyrs. Just before class, I was blessing a medal of um, St. Maximilian Kolbe. Many people don't know his story. He was a priest in the concentration camp in Auschwitz who took the place of a Jewish man on the firing squad and gave his life up so this man could live. We look at that and say, man, he's crazy. What did Jesus say? There's no greater love, says the Lord, than what? Lay down your life for your friend. He didn't know this man outside of he had kids. This man is my brother. If it's between my brother and myself, take my life. Why would he get to that point? Because he looks at the weight of the cross and says, life sucks and then you die. But life doesn't have to suck you down before you die. The world around us is difficult. Life can be difficult. But what is our end goal? I want to get out of life alive. Good luck. You'll be the first one in human history. We're all going to die. In fact, the Benedictines had this mentality to live always with death before our eyes. Not in a morbid way. But if today is my last day on earth, what have I left unsaid, what have I left undone? Do it. Say it. Live it. Because everything that I do in this life, because Christ is who he is, is not for this life, but is for the life to come. That when, we, when Christ says, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend, well, why do I lay down my life for my friend? That's my end. In fact, in philosophical terms, what we say is, your death is a tragedy, my death is the end. Because when our family members and our friends leave and die, like, oh, this sucks, but we move on. Or we don't. Some, sometimes it's harder to move on. I understand that. I'm not trying to belittle that at all. But when we die, we have this fear that there's nothing after life. Because ultimately, we're looking at that question that I started off class with and not believing that Christ is the Lord. We're believing whether we say it because our actions speak louder than our words, whether we say it or not, we're saying Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic. Because if he was truly Lord, and he says to us that he has prepared a space for us with his heavenly Father, and we live our lives as if that's a lie, then we're living as if he's told us a lie. Have you ever thought about it that way? Satan doesn't want you to, I can tell you that. He doesn't want me to either, he doesn't want me to say it. What I've learned is the more that I learn about God, the harder life becomes. You ever ask yourself why that may be? 
Or when something is going really, really well, something really, really crappy happens almost every time. In fact, it was interesting these last couple weeks, it's like, man, things are going so well, I should not have opened my mouth because I was setting myself up. It's like, oh, well, my fault. Yeah, I, I, I should have recognized it. But in the midst of the bad things sometimes, Christ doesn't abandon us. What did Jesus say to us before he ascended to the Father? I will leave with you my spirit as your advocate and guide. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, which we'll pick up on next week. That I will never leave you until the end of the age. Now, we, we try and dissect what's the end of the age. Did that happen in the age of the disciples? That happened in the age of... My understanding is the end of the age is until the end of the world. The world's still here, so he's still here. And so Christ doesn't abandon us. The Father doesn't abandon us. The Holy Spirit doesn't abandon us. We just struggle sometimes to look for him. And when we see him, we're like, wow, squirrel. And we get so distracted so many times. One of the most beautiful pieces of art in this church, I'm the only one that gets to look at all the way through Mass. Some priests will be like, oh my gosh, why would you want to look at the resurrected Christ? Because there's like the resurrected fixes versus the crucifixes. Because for me, it's like, that's why I do what I do. That's why I have the opportunity to, but that's why I do it. Because he paid the price for my sins so that I too can be resurrected from death to life everlasting. So many times on the altar, people don't even realize we have a crucifix here. I went through this a little bit when we had the teaching mass. The crucifix is here because before Vatican II, and sometimes in some churches today, we had mass at Orientum towards the east, but that's ironically towards the west, so technically we do have mass at Orientum. But... Mass would be celebrated this way as the priests leading prayers. And what normally is behind the altar would have been the tabernacle, and above the tabernacle would have been the crucifix. So on every altar or near every altar, a priest must have a crucifix that he can see. That's why on our altar there's a crucifix. Because when we are praying the prayers of the Mass, the majority of them are being prayed to God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we need that focal point to remind us of why we're doing what we're doing. Because if you haven't noticed yet, I'm a little ADHD, and there are a bunch of squirrels everywhere. I, I love having kids in mass, and I do my darndest sometimes to just be like, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them. Yes, I see you, they're cute. Avoid them, avoid them, avoid them, avoid them. But sometimes it's hard. I, I can't lie. I mean, sometimes it's like, that person has gotten up 15 times during Mass to go to the bathroom. I'm the diabetic. Come on. I don't get to go to the bathroom at all during Mass. And I've got to go the whole time. That's why I'm so glad there's a bathroom back there. So if you ever see me disappear, make sure my microphone's off. Because I've had to do that in the past because I'm diabetic. And sometimes you gotta, when you've got to go, you've got to go. Squirrel. Yes, I realize. <laughs> But we get so distracted like that in life all the time, too. 
I realize I did not get through the majority of my material that's here because I think it's more important for us to talk about the, the topic than the specifics. If you want to learn more, look at the catechism. And I mean that sincerely. Yes, I realize it is dense as all get out, but this is one of the most fruitful things that I've ever read in my life over and over and over. In seminary, my first semester of seminary, they made us go through this. I got nothing because I was reading it as a child in the faith, not as an adult in the faith. When I read through this now, the reason I've got four pages of single-spaced quotes in here is because each one of these quotes, I can give you an hour-long lecture on because they are so beautiful, so poignant, touch on so many things that we don't even think about. So if you want to do more reading, please look at the catechism. But not just the catechism, this is something I didn't learn in high school, I don't know why. We learned MLA format and all these different things in Chicago style. I didn't realize that footnotes are important. I mean, I hated putting footnotes in because there's a pain in the butt to like put in there. But when you look at some of the footnotes here, kind of back to your question that first week, Beth, of, hey, are, are, we, are you going to talk about any of the, the saints or the doctors of the church? It's like, by talking about the catechism, I can't not. Because we have, on just this one page alone, John, Thessalonians, Gregory of Nyssa, 1 Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians again, the Nicene Creed, John, and Acts, and Psalms, in just these four paragraphs. And that's just on one random page in here you'll find between five and 25 footnotes. So if you want to know the faith, it's all right here. My hope is to make this palatable, not so much palatable, but more of understandable. Do what? Digestible, thank you. More digestible, because there's a lot in here. I can't get to all this in five years of teaching. I can skim over it. A lot of it's because I'm ADD and I'm all over the place. But there's a lot of information that's in there. There's a lot of things that I'll bring in that aren't in there that I'll reference things. Like I referenced Mere Christianity Tonight by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, it's, it's a philosophical, theological take on Jesus. Some of it is dull. I hate reading Shakespeare. And that's kind of how some of the old English things are to me. So it's like, huh? That's why I'm trying to make it more digestible because I can't make it through Romeo and Juliet. I can watch the movie and that's about it. Um, because my brain cannot focus on, thee, thy, thou art. What? Put it in English. It is in English. Okay, put it in American because that's what I understand. Because this British, I, I, I don't get. I, I don't understand some of the terminology. In fact, there's a priest, Father Gallatin, who, he was a giant in our diocese. He gave me a book, The Diary of a Country Priest. I recommend it. I don't understand it, though, because it's translated from French to English, and I'm trying to figure out, are they saying Monsignor, Monsieur, or another French term in there? It's like, I don't know who this person is, so I just take those words out and use the last names. But The Diary of a Country Priest is a great theological, hey, this is how you can understand the life of a priest. I struggled through it. But I know it's a good text. Um, another text, if you're looking at just kind of going through um, another, another author to look at outside of Lewis, um, would be um, Thomas Merton. He has some of the most insightful 
literature I have ever read. In fact, I was reading The Seven Story Mountain when I applied for seminary. Still haven't finished it, but I was reading through it, got about halfway through. I've gotten halfway through three times and put it down every time because it's just so mind-blowing. But he has um, letters, because uh, if you don't know it, the life of Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk in Kentucky. Um, Trappists are the silent ones, but he was struggling with that. It's like, there's no way I could ever be a monk because I can't be quiet. But then I realized there's some monks that are quiet and some monks that aren't. The Trappists were in a um, monastery where they couldn't talk, except for their spiritual director, confession, that's about it, and at mass. So he wrote and wrote and got permission to actually have um, a lot of his things published. That's very rare. Um, highly recommend reading some Thomas Merton. We've got about three minutes left. I realized I was all over the place like normal. Questions? Don't be nervous. Nobody emailed me this week with questions either. I was so surprised. I guarantee you two are going to come to me right afterward and say, Father, I've got a question. Of course you do. Be courageous. It always happens. That's okay. Well, let's end early then. We'll end you two minutes early. We'll end with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanksgiving for all of the many gifts that you have given to us in our lives. We thank you for the gift of your life that you laid down for each and every one of us despite our sin, despite our obstinance, despite our stubbornness. You loved us so much that you offered yourself for us. As we leave from this place and go to our homes, help us to embrace that love that you offer to us every moment of every day. Help us to be inspired by your sacrifice, to inspire us to sacrifice for ourselves and for our family and friends who we call the body of Christ. Be with us this day. Watch over us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Don't forget, Sunday, for those that didn't know, we've got the um, RCIA before Mass at 9.30. We've got um, the picnic after Mass with the blessing of the pavilion. Um, and we've got food for 250. I think we've got 250 burgers, 250 hot dogs, if not more. Plenty of food. Invite family, friends. It's going to be a great shindig. And we've got like a 70-foot-long um, inflatable toy that's coming out for the kids. It'll be a great time. We'll see you guys on Sunday.